I would like you to take a Bible out, find John chapter 7. In just a minute or two, we're going to read a few verses from John 7. There is an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. Our series through the Gospel of John is titled Believe, and I've shared this verse with you, I think, just about every week as we've looked at the Gospel of John. It comes from the end of the book. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the Gospel of John, believing in Jesus is always an active thing. It's something that we do. We believe the truth about Jesus. And specifically this morning from John 20 and in our passage, we're thinking about this idea that Jesus is the Christ. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the broad theme of the Gospel of John, and it's also the narrow theme of our particular passage I want to remind you of a little bit of context, John 7 and 8. All of the events in John 7 and 8 took place during the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'll just remind you a little bit about what was going on in this feast. It was a feast that took place in the fall. It lasted about a week, and it was a feast where many, many Jewish pilgrims would travel from their home, wherever they lived in Israel, to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. When they got to Jerusalem, many of them lived in booths or tents or tabernacles, little bitty temporary shelters. And while they celebrated this feast and they lived in these little tents, they were remembering that God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And when they did that, they wandered around the desert living in tents. And not only did they live in tents, but God himself lived in a tent. He lived in this tabernacle that they picked up and they carried with them wherever they went. So they're looking back and they're remembering that while they wandered in the wilderness, living in these tents, God provided for them. And since it was fall, they're also remembering God has provided in the harvest. So we're looking back. We're remembering what God did in saving his people from Egypt. We're celebrating another example of God's provision in the harvest. And all of these people, historians tell us many, many people would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In fact, one Jewish historian says it was the most popular feast to attend. I think that's because these Jews were good Baptists. When food was on the table, they show up to eat, right? We had fajitas last week. Y'all were all there and then some. Some of y'all hadn't seen in a long time, showed up for fajitas. That's what Baptists do. We show up and we eat and these Jews were no different. There was a harvest festival taking place essentially in Jerusalem and they said, let's go up, let's eat, let's celebrate, let's remember what God has done to save his people. That's sort of the, the background setting for John 7 and 8. There's also a reference in this passage to Jews not in Jerusalem. In fact, Jews that are very, very far from Jerusalem. If you look at verse 35, just to jump ahead, the Jews say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. And that word dispersion, or sometimes it's translated diaspora, refers to Jewish people who have been scattered away from the promised land. 
And so if you've read the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament ends with sort of a, a train wreck, just a big disaster. And the Assyrian Empire comes and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel and scatters those people into exile. And then the, the nation of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, comes and conquers the southern kingdom of Judah and scatters those people. They're all sent far from their homeland. And you've got all of these Jews all over the what was the Assyrian Empire and then all over the Babylonian Empire and then was the Empire of Alexander the Great and then eventually the Roman Empire. You've got all these Jews scattered all over the place. And they gather together and they form something called synagogues. You don't read about synagogues in the Old Testament. They just show up when you come to the New Testament. That's all these Jewish people living in exile essentially, gathering together to worship, to read the scriptures to sing. And the idea in this passage is Jesus' popularity is on the decline. Maybe Jesus has sort of played out his popularity here in Jerusalem. And maybe what Jesus is talking about, they're just trying to figure it all out, is he's going to take this show on the road and he's going to go to all these Jews who are scattered out. Maybe he'll find an audience there. Maybe he'll find followers there. Because everyone here is kind of sick of him. Right? They either want to kill him or they don't want to listen to him preach anymore. Maybe what Jesus is talking about is he's going to go to the dispersion. The big idea is very clear as you listen to the debates and the arguments in this passage. The big idea is this. Jesus is the Christ. That's what John wants you to take away from this little episode. There's not a ton of action in these verses. There's not a lot that happens, but there's a lot of discussion and a lot of dialogue. And as we listen into that dialogue, John wants us to come away saying, Jesus is the Christ. And we've talked about that title before. Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. And both of them literally mean the anointed one. John wants you to come away saying, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one. It's the one promised in passages like 1 Samuel 2 and Psalm 2 and Isaiah 61, Daniel 9. All these Old Testament passages that talk about the anointed one. And then there's something interesting in our passage. Mixed in with all these biblical promises about the Christ, there are non-biblical ideas about the Christ. And you can find an example of that if you look at verse 27. Look ahead one more time. Verse 27, they say, we know where this man comes from, but when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, you're not going to find that promise in the Old Testament. There's no Old Testament prophecy that says the Christ will come from someplace. No one will know where he's from. He'll just appear. That was just sort of in the air. It was just sort of an expectation that people had. And part of the trickiness of this passage is sort of sorting through all of that. What's a biblical hope? What's a, a non-biblical hope? All of this confusion centering around Jesus. And John wants us to cut through all of it and walk away saying Jesus is the Christ. And so we're going to start just by reading. You follow along, John 7, beginning in verse 25, and we'll go through verse 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. 
He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes this morning. We want to see Jesus. We want to see him for who he is. We want to see what John would have us take away about the person of the Christ. And so we ask for open eyes, open hearts, open minds. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember being young and playing the game of Clue? How many of you have ever won a game of Clue? We have Clue in my house. You can ask my kids. I've never lost at a game of Clue. Undefeated all time. Clue's a simple game. You put the cards in the thing at the beginning and you get your piece and you move around and you ask questions of the other players in the game and you have your little list and you're striking off names and rooms and weapons and you're trying to figure out who done it, right? Who killed who and what room with what weapon and in the end it's just a, a guessing game. And so some of you remember playing this game. Some of you maybe have it at your home still. Some of you say, I've never heard of Clue. We don't do board games. That's too old school for us. So I'll give you another example of a guessing game. It's a show called The Masked Singer. Now, I'm just going to start with a disclaimer that I have never watched this show in my life. I am not recommending this show to you. I am not vouching for this show. I just see the commercials and I know the basic idea. And uh, I went to Crystal this week because Crystal is the office expert on all things related to celebrities. And I said, tell me if I have the idea of this show right. And she said, oh, absolutely. I watched the whole first season. It was fantastic. So here's the premise from me via Crystal. It's pretty simple. You get a bunch of C-list, not A-list, not B-list, C-list celebrities. People that you probably would say, I didn't even know that person was a celebrity or I've never heard of that person. And you put them on this show and you dress them up in a costume and they come out and they sing. And they have, you know, the full garb on and you can't tell who it is and they got a little hole in the mask where they can sing and then after they sing which I think is their voice the judges or the panel gets to ask them questions and they disguise the voice so you hear the singing voice but you don't hear the true speaking voice and they ask them questions who are you what have you done da 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 da, da. and the whole premise of the show is can they figure out who is singing behind one of the particular masks. How many of you have watched an episode of this show? Be honest, don't lie. There's a lot of you have watched this show. There you go. I've never watched an episode. I think a new season's coming out. The idea is basically, basically it's the game of Clue with reality TV and masks and costumes and singing. It's the same thing. It's a guessing game. Can we figure out who the mystery person really is? In this part of the Gospel of John, that's what we're sort of looking at. It's a big guessing game. 
And you've got all these people who have flooded Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus shows up, and everybody is just talking about this man from Nazareth. Who is he? What's he all about? Could he really be the Christ? Because he doesn't meet some of our expectations and some of the things that we think the Christ should be and some of the things that he should do. And some of them, John says, believe, but he kind of almost puts that word in quotes because as soon as he says that some of the people believe, he turns around and he says they're asking questions. Is it really him? Is he going to do more signs? There's just a bunch of confusion about who Jesus is. And we get to sort of eavesdrop in on the conversation. We get to listen to Jesus talking to the crowds. We get to listen to the debates that they're having. We get to sort of see behind the curtain as the Pharisees and the Sadducees are sending people unsuccessfully to arrest Jesus. And in all of it, John wants us to come away with a firm conviction. This is, in fact, the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. Right? All of the dialogue in John 7, 25 to 36 centers on the identity of Jesus as the Christ. And what we want to do is sort of look at this passage, listen to this conversation, and walk away saying this is who Jesus is as the Christ. This is what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we're going to listen to this and we're going to try to pull several truths out of it this morning. The first thing we need to nail down is this. The Christ will not conform to human expectations. He will not conform to human expectations. He will not simply be who people want him to be. Verse 27. We know, the people said, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. So these are people saying, it can't be the Christ. There's something we know about Jesus, and it doesn't line up with what we expect from the Christ, and so he's got to be disqualified, right? We know this. If you've read through the Gospel of John, that little phrase, we know, should remind you of somebody we've already seen earlier in chapter 3, somebody named Nicodemus. John 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, we know some things about you, Jesus. Let me tell you what we know, Nicodemus leads with. You're a teacher, and you've come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know this about you. And they have a conversation and Jesus challenges some of the things that Nicodemus thinks he knows. And look how Nicodemus leaves the conversation a few verses later in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, "How can these things be?" And Nicodemus is presented to us as somebody who came to Jesus very confidently thinking he had Jesus figured out. We know this about you. And he left sort of scratching his head, not sure he had all the pieces in the right place. These people say the exact same thing. We know something about Jesus, and he can't be the Christ because of what we all believe, that when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Other people aren't hung up on his birth city. Other people, if you look at verse 31, want more signs. They say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Like... 
their mindset is there's a certain quota of miracles or signs that the Christ has to do, and Jesus just hasn't done enough. This is what we've read in the Gospel of John so far. far. John 2, he turns water into wine. That was in Cana. Not a lot of people knew about that. Sort of a backwater town at a wedding. John 4, he healed a sick boy. John 5, he healed an invalid. This one was in Jerusalem. A lot of people knew about this one. This was sort of a, a public miracle that a lot of people talked about. John 6, he fed the crowd. That was a very, very public miracle. In fact, I told you it was Jesus' most public miracle. There was upwards of 20,000 people there when it happened, and those people went home to the various places they lived, and they talked about it. John 6, he walked on water. Not very many people knew about that. And so some of these people in Jerusalem have heard about some of this list, and some of them have not heard about some of the things on this list, and they just sort of say, you know, the Christ, he's supposed to do all kinds of amazing stuff, right? Has this guy done enough? Has he met the quota? How easy would it have been for Jesus to hear that and say, you want more miracles? I'll give you more miracles. We'll set up a miracle booth right here. And you just walk up and, I mean, how many do you want? Do you want five? I can do five. Would that have been hard for Jesus to do? Do you want ten miracles? Do you want a miracle for everyone here? Do you want five miracles for everyone here? Like, name the number. Jesus could have just done it. Instantly. That was their expectation. That was their excuse. He hasn't done enough, and Jesus just very easily could have performed more miracles. But he doesn't. Why? He doesn't conform to human expectations. We need to be reminded of this in our culture. In our culture today, people have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus ought to be or what Jesus ought to do. Jesus, I, I like to think of Jesus like this, or Jesus, he, he ought to do that. But Jesus is not like a two-bit politician who just sort of conforms to whatever you want in the moment. right? He's not the politician who just sort of changes positions and is like a chameleon to be whoever you want him to be so that you'll vote him in and he can be in office and then stay in office. That's not what he's like. Jesus is not like the church looking for a pastor. How many of you think back to a time where you were at a church and the church was looking for a new pastor? Many times what a church will do when they're looking for a new pastor is before they ever go out and talk to anybody, they say, you know, we need a profile of who we want. So we're going to poll the congregation. And I've looked at these polls. I've participated in some of these polls. They put the poll out and they say, okay, Everybody gets to vote. We're going to tabulate all the answers. How old would you like the new pastor to be? Would you like him to be this age range or this age range or this age range? You get to vote. And then we're going to say, well, how much education would you like the new pastor to have? He needs to have this much degree or this much degree or this much degree. How much experience would you like him to have? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? Where would, you, would you like him to be married and have kids? Where would you like him to be from? Like We develop a whole profile. Churches do this. And then they aggregate it all together and they say, this is the person we're looking for. Now go find somebody that meets that particular profile. I just want to state the obvious. When God sent the Christ, he didn't poll the Jews to say, okay, I'm ready to, to send him. Let's talk about who you guys want. Where would you like him to be from? 
And where do you want him to go to school? Which rabbi do you want him to study under? And how much experience does he need before he jumps in? And, and what do you want his name to be? And he didn't ask any of those questions. He just sent the right person for the right job. And these people have the idea that the Christ must fit their job description, their profile, their expectation, and Jesus refuses to conform to that. He really doesn't even enter into any sort of debate or discussion about that. This may seem really obvious to you, but I just think it's an important point for people like me and you who live in a culture where people think we get to define everything. Our culture really thinks that every person is a walking, in-progress dictionary. And you've got all the terms lifted, listed there, and you get to write your own definition for any and all of the terms. You just fill them in, whatever you want it to be. You fill it in for marriage, you fill it in for gender, you fill it in for happiness, you fill it in for success, you fill it in for truth, you fill it in for morality. All these categories will supply the term, you supply the definition. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way in third grade when you're taking a vocabulary test, right? Try it with your third grade teacher. Third graders, just make your own definition up. You're going to fail the third grade. You're going to be a third grader twice. You don't get to do that. It doesn't work in the third grade. It doesn't work in life. You don't get to define things however you want to define them. And that includes, above all, Jesus. You don't get to just say, well, this is, this is the version of Jesus that I would be comfortable with. I'm not so sure I like this and that, and we'll just kind of chop him up and carve him off on the rough edges. You either get him or you don't get him. He refuses to conform to human expectations. Secondly, the Christ was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father. Look at verse 28 and 29. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and remember, this is an ongoing conversation. So you can back up earlier in chapter 7, and you can look at verse 16, where Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking my own authority, meaning God the Father has sent me. I'm saying what the Father wants me to say. And he continues that. He says, The one who sent me is true. I haven't come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and underline this phrase, him you do not know. Do you know how that phrase fell on the people who were listening to Jesus? He says, I have been sent by God the Father. And the things that I say to you are not mine, they're his. So they're true things. And the problem is, according to Jesus, you don't know him. He sent by the Father. Verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. When you think about the Father sending the Son, there's two words that I need you to wrestle with, two sort of questions that you need to be asking yourself. One is, what was the motivation? And two is, what's the purpose? What motivated the Father to send the Son? 
and what was the purpose in the Father sending the Son? And I think the answer to both of those questions is John 3.16. We've talked about it so many times in this series. God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. That was the motivation. Love for the world. God, the Father, loved the world, and that's what motivated him to send the Son. That love was completely undeserved. We talked last week about John 7.7 where Jesus says, The world hates me. That's how the world responds to God's love, with hatred, with rebellion, with stiff necks and hard hearts. The world isn't interested in any of it. And yet out of love, God the Father sends the Son. You need to understand and I need to understand that any idea that the Father sent the Son because he just couldn't bear the thought of life or eternity without us is gobbledygook. Okay? We're not lovable people. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. His love is free and it's undeserved. It's gracious. And God, from all eternity past, had experienced love. The Father from eternity past had love for the Son and for the Spirit. And God the Son from eternity past had love for the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit had that same love for the Father and the Son. God existed just fine for all eternity past without us. He didn't need us. But it's the overflow of that love that existed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that motivates Him to send the Son. He's motivated to send the Son by love, the same love that he's experienced from all eternity past and will experience to all eternity future. To what end? What's the purpose of all of it? We'll look at the back half of John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life, eternal life. That's the purpose. That's the end, that we would not die but that we would live Can I just tell you that when we send mission teams and when we ask you to give to the Gideons or we ask you over the next few months to give sacrificially to a world missions offering, that those same two words are really important for us to think about. What's our motivation and what's the purpose? The answer to those questions ought to be exactly the same as the Father sending the Son. The motivation for us going and sending mission teams, the motivation for us giving sacrificially to missions offering is love. Love for God first and love for others second. What's the purpose? What's the end? What's the goal? It's that people would have life, that they would know eternal life. When we give to a missions offering, when we send a missions team to Kenya, when you give to the Gideons so that they can send Bibles, the motivation is love, And the purpose is life. And Jesus says to these people, you want to know who I am? You want to know who the Christ is? I'm the one sent by the Father. Sent because he has love for the world. Sent that the world might have life. That brings us to the third truth. The Christ is the only way to know the Father. The only way to know the Father. And this is where I'll come back to verse 28 to this little phrase He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Those words were deeply offensive 
to the people in Jerusalem. They prided themselves on being descendants of Abraham, on being descendants of David. They thought they knew the Lord. They were confident in that. They thought they alone had a relationship with Yahweh. And Jesus walks into the middle of their feast and he says, you don't know him. You don't know God. How many of you ever heard a grandma or a grandpa say that something really got stuck in their craw? You remember that phrase, right? Birds have a little craw or a little croup or a crop, whatever you want to call it, right there in their throat. It's part of their digestive system, and something that doesn't need to go down sometimes gets stuck right there, and it can come back up the other way. And It's a saying that we use, something is stuck in my craw, to say, I can't get over that. I can't move past that. Somebody has done something to me or somebody said something to me and it is really stuck in my craw. And I'm just telling you, to quote your grandma or your grandpa or your great-grandma or your great-grandma, when Jesus looked at these people and said, you don't know God, it really got stuck in their craw. They never got over it. We are not that far. We're about six months away from the cross. And this last six months that Jesus spent on earth, that idea that Jesus looked them in the eyeballs and said, you don't know the Father, really got stuck in their craw. You can fast forward to the next chapter. They're still talking about it. They're still arguing it. They can't drop it. They can't let it go. They can't move on. They are so angry with Jesus that he would have the audacity to look them in the eye and say, you don't know the Father. Why? Jesus says, I'm the only one who really knows him. And if you want to know him, it's got to be through me. Jamie quoted John 14, 6 earlier. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you're going to reject the Christ, there is no hope that you would know the Father. Can I tell you that what Jesus said to these people is true for all of us who live in the Bible Belt? Just as much just as much as it's true for people who live on the other side of the world and have never heard about Jesus. Sometimes people in the Bible Belt say things like, I've always believed in God. There's never been a time where I didn't believe in God. And I think we know what that person's trying to say. They're probably saying, I grew up going to church and hearing the stories and I've just kind of always believed those things as long as I can remember. But let's be clear, biblically and theologically, that's not true. There was a time where you didn't know him, where you were separated from him because of your sin. And until you trust in Jesus as the Christ, you don't know God. That's true for people born in the Bible Belt, and that's true for people born on the other side of the world that don't have a Bible in their language, don't have a church to attend, don't have a missionary there telling them the good news. They don't know God. They do lots of religious things. They do lots of spiritual things. They pray and they sing and they do all sorts of offerings and whatnot, but they don't know the Father. Why? Because they don't know the Christ. He's the one that gives you access to the Father, and he's the only one. And Jesus starts to argue with these people about it here, and Jesus doesn't drop it, and they can't get past it. And it's just as offensive 2,000 years later as it was then. To stand up and say, there is only one way that you can know the Father. It's through Jesus Christ. Your religion won't do it. Your good works won't do it. You haven't just been born and showed up here on the earth knowing him and loving him. That's not how it works. You, you are born a sinner, alienated from God, separated from him, an object of his wrath, an enemy of God. And the only way that you can know him is the Father 
is through the Christ. This is a dividing line. And you have to listen to what Jesus is saying here, and you have to just make a decision. Is Jesus right or is he wrong? When he says the only way to know the Father is through him, is Jesus right about that or is he wrong about that? If he's right about it, it ought to change the way that we look at our neighbors in the Bible Belt. They may look at you in the face and say, oh yeah, I believe in God. But if they don't know Jesus, they don't know him. And they're lost. doesn't matter if you live in Odessa, Texas. doesn't matter if you live in the Bible Belt. doesn't matter if you live in the, the South. None of that has any bearing on it. If you don't know Jesus and you don't follow Jesus, you don't know God. And that's true for people on the other side of the world. The people we give a world missions offering to send missionaries to. Right? The places in the world where we send mission teams because there's nobody there talking about Jesus. We believe Jesus when he says, unless those people know me as the Christ, they don't know the Father. So we give generously and sacrificially and we send people and people can know the Father. We can talk about Jesus. People can know the Christ and people can know the Father. One last idea is this. How is it that Jesus is the only way to know the Father? The answer is simple. The Christ came to die. He came to die. You may have noticed that twice in this debate, the Jews send people to arrest Jesus. John's going to clue us in eventually on how that all played out. But they've sent people to arrest Jesus. And did you notice what John said in verse 30? John 7 verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Last week it was his time. His time had not yet come. It's fascinating to read through this gospel and Jesus is constantly in conflict. And over and over and over again in the early chapters of the Gospel of John we read, it wasn't his hour. His hour had not yet come. It wasn't his time. His time had not yet come. And then all of a sudden, I'm just going to fast forward. You come to John 12, verse 23, and Jesus says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right? All through this Gospel, it's not his hour, it's not his time. His hour hasn't come. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, guess what? The hour has come. And guess what happens just a few days later? He's crucified. He dies on the cross in the place of sinners. The single, sole, central purpose for which Jesus came, that he would give his life as a sacrifice, as a propitiation, to appease and to satisfy God's wrath towards sinners, to reconcile us back into a relationship with the Father. That's why he came. And at this point, they're ready to arrest him. They're already planning to kill him, but John says, don't worry, not his hour. It wasn't the right time. That hour was planned in eternity past. That hour came to pass in the perfect fullness of time, but that time was not John 7. So no one laid a hand on him because it wasn't his hour. His hour was coming. The moment would come where Jesus would give himself to a sham trial, to be arrested, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be crucified. And it wasn't just a bad ending to an otherwise interesting story. It was the very reason he came. The Christ came to die.
And the question for you and the question for me this morning is very simple. All the way back to John 20. These things are written that you might believe. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that there is a God who created you to know Him and to love Him? Do you believe that you and I are sinners? We're rebels. We're treasonous creatures violating and breaking and defying the laws of the one who created us. Do you believe that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, took on flesh and lived among us, He dwelt among us, He tabernacled among us so that He could die for us? If you believe that, you have a firm and a solid foundation underneath your feet, something that you can build on, something that is strong and secure. If you do not believe that, I join John, and the rest of us in this room join John, and we urge you, we beg you, we plead with you, believe. Believe. Don't try to redefine a Jesus of your own making. Don't try to quibble with whether or not he's the only way or there's other ways. Right? Don't bow up against what John is telling us about the Christ. Just believe.